Well, welcome, Heidi Banishevsky. It's so fun to be able to speak with you, you and to catch up after um, so many years of, of knowing one another, interacting, living in two different communities on two different continents with yes, one another. It's crazy. And, and then now briefly sharing a, a European experience uh, together. You're in Kosovo, right? Are you in Kosovo right mm -hmm. now? Uh, right now, I'm in the States, um, okay, but we're yeah. living in Kosovo, yeah. Got it, right very now. good. And then yeah. soon to relocate again to Korea, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Very good, very good. Well, um, I brought you into the conversation because I've learned a lot from you uh, as a, a middle-class person. Uh, I've learned a lot from you about how to uh, begin to pastor a congregation that wants to be engaged with people that are, are in some ways unlike them. And the particular area that you have some wisdom, I think, is helping a majority um, middle-class congregation think well and think neighborly about neighbors that might not be middle-class. When I met you, um, you, you were living in a, in a a relatively low income neighborhood and you be kind of kind of became known as the as the woman in the neighborhood that people could go to if they just needed something right a meal mm -hmm. or um, I don't know what other kinds of things just somebody a listening ear some counsel and mm -hmm. that was so impressive to me that you made yourself available just as a neighbor and and friend to people yeah beautiful well that was that was really the Lord and that was um uh, a work that that he began to do by by nature um i'm a very pragmatic person um very um ocd and and very detail oriented um which is all a sort of complicated way of saying i'm not at all relational <laughs> not at all and you know i came to the lord in my early 20s um you got married had children and always stayed very busy and, and you know, about the father's work, never building relationships, never um, stepping over the outside of my immediate family, you know, never stepping into anything intimate or anything relational. Um, and then as my life started to slow down a little bit, God started to speak to me. Um, and the, the, the biggest revelation I had was that God is relational. And if I'm not by nature relational, tough. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something I have to work on because God is relational. That the Christmas story in its most basic form is God looking down on creation and with his mercy and desire to redeem it, he sent his son to leave his home and basically move into the neighborhood. He moved into where we were at, became one of us, and then went, through that was able to redeem us. He built a relationship with us. He spent years building a relationship with his 12 disciples. He really, Christianity at, at its core is relational, which, you know, none of that was good news for me <laughs> because I did not, did not want to be relational um, at all. But it did lead me to, to your church because your church is one of them, was one of the church that I attended where you pastored um, in Rock Hill, South Carolina was, you know, definitely the most relational church I'd ever been in. Um, but I think, you know, that then as we started to, as I, 
personally started to get involved in more ministries that required me to first get to know the people I was serving, you know, God was able to do this amazing, I think, amazing work in me and, and changing my heart. But but that's what that was all about in Rock Hill. We intentionally, when we moved there, sought out the the neighborhood that we, that or one of the neighborhoods that had the most need and wanted to move in and just kind of grow it organically, just find out what the need was and then begin to meet it. So for you and Dave, it was just an intentional way of saying, um, this is what I see in the life of God in the incarnation of Jesus. And so in this small way, we just want to imitate Jesus. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, you've, you've crossed some ethnic uh, cultural lines, but also maybe the key one has been um, uh, a line from sort of a middle-class life to uh, engaging with people that are in poverty in one way or another. So mm -hmm. why, is that a, why is that something that Christians just are called to? Not only are we to give of our possessions, but we're to give of our lives as well. And so um, when you look at all of scripture, the Old and New Testament, um, the, the, the most talked about topic, the subject that, that God decided to give the most amount of, of print space to um, is, is poverty and our money and our possessions and, and um, how we handle those justly. Scripture is just alive with all kinds of guidance on what we are supposed to do with the things we have. And there's over 2,000 scriptures that deal with not our salvation, not sanctification, not, you know, the Trinity or whether we should have infant baptism or not. What There's 2,000 scriptures about what I'm supposed to do with what I have. Wow. And, and I think as for Christians, I think once we read those scriptures, it becomes pretty clear that one of our main ministries is to the poor and to underserved. Oh. Amen. So why would it be important for uh, middle class or wealthy relative uh, Christian believers to do that, to say, we're not just going to uh, try to bless the the minority Shan people in Myanmar and Thailand, for example, which our church has adopted, but we're also going to um, go a few blocks over in Zurich and and become blessing to the people that live on the street right around the corner from mm -hmm. us. Why is that? Is that a good idea, or or am I making stuff up? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it it absolutely is a good idea, and I think you know foreign missions. I I think are great, and I mean I just think there's a whole experience of relating to people um, within your own community. It requires so much more from you as a person. It requires you to look at the systemic problems in your community that have attributed to that person's poverty. The, their poverty really stems from um, systemic economic systems and class systems that people had no control over. Um, much of poverty, we want to think that people have control over their own poverty, particularly in the United States. You know, we 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 believe in this falsehood that everybody can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. You know, if you don't have boots, there's no straps to pull yourself up with. It, it serves two purposes to be involved in your local community. It helps you grow as a person, 
but I also think it helps you to look at your community as a whole and make life-changing, long-lasting changes. Uh, usually we think um, when we serve people that experience poverty, we are entering into the pure brokenness of human reality. And you helped show me how there is not just brokenness in cultures that are experiencing poverty, but a lot of beauty as well. And some beauty that middle-class and wealthier folks might not even experience in their own contexts. Could you say something about, about what you've discovered in your experience? And, and one of the things we, that we talk about in the, US, in the U.S., and I think this is true of most Western countries, is, you know, you have your wealthy class, and then you have your middle class, and you have your um, poverty class. And each one of those classes has a system of values that they hold on to, things that are important to them. And I think what people who are wealthy and middle class, what, what usually surprises them what they find um, kind of as a revelation as they get to know people in poverty is they have certain values um, that are much closer actually to the teachings of Jesus. They value relationship above all else, you know, above things that maybe even as middle-class and wealth, we would question. They value their relationships above their jobs above their material goods. You know, I, I remember when I first started working um, in, in homeless shelters, meeting people who lost their job because their friend needed them. You know, and to me, that was like, in my head, I'm thinking, well, bozo, what did you expect? But as I got to, to know more people, I realized that's not necessarily a bad trait. That I, I learned so much from becoming friends and being in relationship with people who, who would be considered underserved. I mean, they, they taught me so much um, as I went through my own journey of, of trying to become more relational, more Christ-like. You know, they, they just taught me some really important characteristics. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, in the American South where we lived in the same community, the, one of the ways that this was most obvious um, was that if you're wealthy or middle-class, you know, you come home from work and you click your garage door opener and it goes up and you go in and the garage door comes back down and you go into your air conditioned home and nobody even sees you until you leave for work the next day, right? Whereas mm -hmm. if you go down the street that you lived on, you would see people congregating on front porches and Yes. sharing stories and sharing life together. Mm. Um, and so there's just a, a really visible um, sense of relationships are, are key and important um, in a way that, that middle-class people, at least in America, miss yes. out on, right? Um, are there any other myths or assumptions that we have about people that live in poverty uh, that probably need to be deconstructed for us people that are either middle-class or wealthy? I think that most people think that people are in poverty um, due to their poor, poor choices. And I think many times poor choices have made the situation worse. But I, I, there, there's two kinds of poverty um, with the experts who deal with this, uh, categorize them as generational poverty or situational poverty. And 
Real briefly, because there's a small percentage of people in poverty that are situational. Situational poverty is, you know, let's say, and I know that you and Ellie both come from, you know, strong families who you're in contact with, but let's say, you know, you were both only children, you don't have any families, and, and you both lose your jobs. That's situational poverty. You found yourself in, you know, you, you know, Ellie got sick and and you lost your job and she lost her job because she's sick and now there's all these hospital bills and you can't afford to feed your boys. That's situational poverty. Um, most people fall into generational poverty. And that's you know, depending on where you live and what country you live in, um, that almost always stems from systemic economic policies that cause generational poverty. Um, I, you know, people that live in poverty in any country, anybody who's in a poverty situation is living in survival mode. And that's something that in, in middle class and in wealth, we're not, we can't really can't comprehend. Most people in middle class live for the future. They're saving for the future. They're being educated for the future. They're you know, getting married so they can have children in the future. It's all about the future and building the best future that they can. People in poverty are just trying to make it to bed that night alive. You know, fed, warmth, some shelter over their head and alive. And that's something that, you know, even, even after years of working, I still, I still struggle to grasp what that really means because I've never been in that situation. I've never been in survival mode. I think I remember now um, one other thing that you taught me so many years ago, and that was that um, there is a sort of tension where because we live in a socioeconomic world in the modern West that has certain rules and certain ways of attaining uh, uh, less of a crisis to crisis existence, mm -hmm. right? Um, that you almost have to learn the rules of the middle class game. Yes. But the Absolutely. key for us would be to um, to sort of teach them the secrets, so to speak, of, of yeah. middle class survival um, without insisting that they conform to middle class values and assumptions. Right. Do I remember I, correctly? Yes, that's, that's perfectly put. I think in most Western countries, the systems of most countries and governments and educational institutions are run on middle-class values. And if you want to be successful um, in most Western countries, you have to adopt middle-class values. People in poverty, um, and the example I gave earlier about um, the, the gentleman who lost his job because his friend needed him, that's a valuable attribute and 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 I don't want to belittle that and I don't want him necessarily to change what I do want him to understand is that the business where he works at runs on middle class values and middle class value puts work above everything else you know the hard working well in america the hard working protestant ethic you know that's where you know the harder you work the closer to God you are. Now, of course, that's not at all in the Bible, but that's the middle class value. And so to help them understand that their value, there's something wrong with their value system. But in order to be financially successful, they're going to have to adopt these in their work, in, in their profession, so that they can be successful. Is there some practical way that, that we could um, 
be more attentive to, more uh, more ready to be hospitable to people uh, who would come in among us? Um, is there a way secondarily that we could demonstrate to our wider community that we are a place that is open to open to you, whether you are in any of the three classes? Have any mm -hmm. comments on that? Um. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a very difficult question. Um, but I, I think one of the most important things is, and you've already touched on it several times, is not to look at what you do as um, service or ministry, but just being in relationship. I think the most important thing you have to do first is. Um, is to be a friend. And I think, you know, you had alluded to in the beginning of our conversation about um, when, when David and I, my husband um, moved in, in Rock Hill and to the neighborhood that um, we wanted to be a part of, you know, you had said we became known as the house that you could go to if you had trouble. Well, I mean, we didn't just move in and put a sign out, you know, we're the house that you can come to. We had, we had to build relationships with people. We had to be, become friends with them. And, and to become friends with people, you, you have to view yourself as their equal. You can't view yourself as a savior. You can't view yourself as that you have all the answers that, you know, their struggles may have been different than mine, but I was as broken, as desperate, as flawed as they were, just in different ways. And where, you know, hopefully I like to think that I helped them with some of the areas they were struggling with. You know, they helped me in the areas I was struggling with as well. And, and I think it, it's more about a, a mindset. Um, that's we, well, and that's how we need to deal with all people, but particularly people who aren't in our economic class or who aren't in our ethnic culture or our racial culture. We just have to just be who we are um, and build a relationship with them. And then we'll be able to really minister to them. Um, I think the other tendency we have, um, and it's because you know, we love the Lord and we love people and we wanna help. And many of us have been blessed and have resources we assume what you need. And I think that's the biggest mistake. When you build a relationship, you find out what the people need and then you help them together, you help them meet that need. Of even as I've grown as a, as a Christian and as a pastor, I've also realized that yes, uh, the Lord saves me and he saves me in this heroic sort of way where he sweeps into my, my desperate need and rescues me, right? But there's another way in which the Lord changes me and saves me, and that is by the slow, tender kindness of his relationship with me, right? Mm -hmm. that, that he is not just my savior, but my friend. And as friend, um, he wants me to grow in wisdom and understanding and knowledge so that um, in, in blessing me, I can turn and, and be a blessing to my, my family and others as well, mm -hmm. right? So it seems like there's a, there's a beautiful um, 
parallel there too with our ministry of hospitality that um, we can leave the heroic sweeping in and, and rescuing to the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. and we can imitate his, his um, face-to-face personal kindness, mm-hmm. his gentleness and all that, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Well, and I think that's perfectly mirrored in, in the story of Jesus. I mean, God didn't need to do all that to save humanity. It wasn't necessary. I, I mean, God makes the rules. He didn't have to make it that way, but he He sent his son to, to leave the glory of, of heaven and perfection to come down and, and live you know, to be born amongst the animals. I mean, he, he, he just, he, he came down to be in relationship with us. And I mean, none of that was, was necessary, but that's the way God chose to do it. And, and I think, you know, if we're supposed to be modeling Christ, we have to understand that it it takes, it, it takes more. I mean, we can't to come in and sweep with large and don't, I mean, if you have large sums of money, yes, give them to Christian ministries. You know, we need the large sums of money, but but it's more than that. That's that's not enough. It's it's really not enough. This has been such a joy, uh, Heidi, to catch up with you again and to to hear your your wisdom and your experience on these topics. And I know you're humble about your your expertise, but I really consider your expertise really valuable. And I'm excited to share it with, with our church community. Thank you so much, Heidi. It's been such a blessing. And you're welcome. um, Thanks for asking me, Andy.